<clears throat> Man, it's so much fun to be back here. Always is. Uh, Sherry and I love being here. Um, we love the music, and so you guys did a great job. And uh, I was going to tell the guy playing piano, he better watch out, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, today is the uh, the third Sunday of Advent, and so. Um, and as, I, as we approach Christmas, I, just me personally, I can't ever uh, just be during the Christmas season, uh, my thoughts just think about all the kind of great things of, that are associated with Christmas. And, and, um, and I think back on a time um, when I was just, I would consider it like my, the best Christmas I ever had. Uh, this was in 1968. I was five years old. And uh, this Christmas was really very much a product of the time. Okay, because it's, it's the thing in my head, it's like the first thing, it's the first Christmas I remember. And so I'm about to have my 45th Christmas after that. And so everything after this one Christmas just sort of pales in comparison. Um, and there's something really tragic when you peak at five. <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, but the, the memory about that Christmas really is a product of that time. Okay, and here's why that's the truth. Um, so 1968, sort of one of the gadgets at the time was, you know, it was 8-millimeter cameras. And my dad, I think so, at some point during that year, got one. And so he's going to film the Christmas. This is the first time he's going to film it uh, that I can recall. And so, uh, and I'm the youngest of five kids. I, I was pretty much the very youngest of five kids. I had brothers and sisters who were all teenagers, essentially, at that time. And um, so here it is, that Christmas morning, and my dad is going to film it. And so to film with 8-millimeter cameras, you had to set up these big, bright lights, okay, on tripods. And so we're standing at the top of the stairs, and I get to go down first because I'm the youngest, but down at the bottom of the stairs and around the corner is some bright lights just shining. And I'm five years old, and I don't know if, like, if the baby Jesus is in that room <laughs> you know, or Santa is there. I don't know. I'm not kidding. It, it, to me, was just super magical. Right, just wondrous. Like I, I don't know what's around the corner, and I think I've got something. Go ahead and show the slide. I went. Uh, um, this was the gift that I had that was at the bottom of the tree. This did, did anybody old enough that did you ever have one of these? This is called a crazy car. This is the gift I got. This was in my head was the best gift I ever got because um, you could you could sit in that thing and spin it like this, or if you did it in such a way you could spin around and get dizzy. You know, so I was in my front yard sort of getting high, I guess, you know, just sort of just spinning around as a kid, you know, five, you know. But it was the best gift I ever got. I went and found that on eBay just to look at it. And just all these floods of, flood of memories just came back like, oh, you know, kind of wondrous. Look, here's the thing. Here's why, the reason why I even just tell you any of that um, is because, um, and here's part of it, too, because like the next year, uh, my dad, I don't think, set up the camera that year. Because, look, I was the youngest of five kids. He was exhausted. You know, eight-millimeter camera. It's a real pain, you know, just to set up. I can remember. So the, all the Christmases after that became less and less wondrous, right? You know, the kind of gifts you get and that sort of thing. And, and, and I just say all that to say this, that um, the wonder of Christmas, the wonder of Christmas can fade, can it? And here's the truth. I don't mean whether or not there's a bright light at the end of the stairwell or uh, a great gift that you may have gotten. That's not what I'm talking about. The wonder of Christmas, the truth about Christmas, can fade on, with, with all of us. Uh, and it can, um, 
we can lose the, the meaning of Christmas, the, the real deep meaning, the life-changing meaning because of the day-to-day life, right? And there, honestly, uh, it can get lost in the day-to-day uh, living of life until there's little, and I'm telling you what, some days just no effect on how we live and raise our families or live in our neighborhoods and how we love each other. It can have, it can, we can, it can just fade. If we're not careful, it can fade from our lives until it's like a distant memory. So here's this morning, I want to see if there's something I can point you to in God's Word that, can, um, that we can recapture some of the wonder of Christmas, the true wonder of it. Now, the passage we'll be looking at this morning is in John chapter 4, so if you have your Bibles, please turn there, but I want to set it up even more. Um, the Gospel of John starts off with some very famous words, in the beginning, Right? It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, we can say it this way, you know, in the beginning was the Son, you know, Jesus. And Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. That's, that's the understanding of that passage. Jesus is God. It's wonderful words, right? Now, you go down to verse 14 in chapter 1, and it says, and the Word became flesh. You know, or Jesus, the Son, became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, there's a, a translation of the Bible out there called The Message. And the guy that translated his name is Eugene Patterson. And, and uh, he translates uh, verse 14 this way. And the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. I love that, right? He moved into where we are. He moved into the neighborhood. And so here we have the, the, uh, the theological term is it's the incarnation. That God took on flesh and lived among us. That's the theological term, Right? And so if we just sort of dwell there in the theological realm, it stays very abstract. It's just a concept, right? Um, And we can gain all the knowledge of the incarnation and read all the books on it, right? But what we need to do is to move from our head to our heart so it changes us. And uh, the Apostle Paul says that, you know, gosh, we can have all these things. If we don't have love, we're nothing. Uh, In that very same book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 8, Paul says that knowledge puffs up. We can gain all the knowledge. It puffs us up. But then he says, love builds up. So how do we get the knowledge of the incarnation that Jesus dwelt among us? How does it move from our head to our heart so that it really changes us? Let me give you one illustration. It's kind of frivolous. And so uh, there's all kinds of footnotes to this because I'm going to reference a movie that probably not the best movie to watch. But it's a Christmas movie, and I still like it, and I laugh at it. Uh, kids don't watch it. But uh, it's called uh, A Christmas Vacation, Chevy Chase. It's on TV. You can't miss it. I think it's on there. There's a part in that movie, okay? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn it into some, like, really heady movie. Like, you know, like, it was really an important movie. You know, it was a film. You know, not a movie. All right? But here's what happens in it. Chevy Chase, is ha- it's Christmas. He has his in-laws over in the house. He wants to have a big family Christmas. And so uh, early one morning, a couple days before Christmas, he sneaks up into the attic to hide some gifts. He's already wrapped them. And he's going to hide them up there so he can bring them out later, you know, Christmas Eve. So he's up there. He, had, he pulled down the ladder and climbs up into the attic. And while he's up there, I guess his mother-in-law walks by, and there's cold air coming down. And so she kind of does this, and she shuts it up, right? So she closes it up. He gets stuck up there because everybody leaves to go shopping. And he's up there, and they don't know he's up there. But what, here's what happens while he's up there. He goes to hide these gifts, and while he's hiding the gifts, he discovers some gifts from last year that he forgot about. <laughs> right? 
You ever, you know, Christmas morning, you think, well, there was another gift. I just know there was one. But that's, he discovers it up there. And something else happens. While he's stuck there, when everybody's gone, he finds these old 8-millimeter films from his childhood. And there's a projector up there. And he somehow finds a socket to plug it in, you know. But he, he sits there and he watches these old movies of himself as a kid. And he reminisces, right? And he's sitting there just, you know, you can just see the emotional part of this and things he's forgotten about. All right, so here's what I'm advocating that we do. We need to lock ourselves up in the attic very often and look at Jesus. Jesus gave us eight millimeter films, right? He gave us stories. God gave us stories. Stories of we can take the idea of the incarnation. You know, we can stop at the first part of John and say, yeah, he, he took on flesh and dwelt among us. But if we go and we look at the 8-millimeter films, or actually gifts that he's given that we've forgotten, if we look at them, it can begin to change our hearts. It can really affect us. And so what, what I'm going to do is look at a, a film, right? an 8-millimeter film of Jesus that he gave to us to look at, for us to, for us to change us. It's a, it's a film of him taking on flesh, moving into the neighborhood, dwelling, dwelling among us. It's in John chapter 4. And so I'm going to read this and, and talk about it as we go. All right? And so here is the written word of God. John chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, there's one important detail I want to point out, and and I'll keep reading the scripture. But um, it's important because when when it's mentioned that it's the sixth hour, uh, we need to know what that means. And the commentators all say that it's important to know that the sixth hour means it's noonday. And so it would be unusual for what happens next to happen, that someone would show up during the noonday hour. Normally, because it would be the hottest part of the day, people would go to the well to get water in the early morning or late afternoons. And so right away, when we read the next thing, we want to know, well, why? Why is this person here at the noonday? All right, and that person is called, typically referred to as the woman at the well. And we're going to learn some things about her. And we're going to know why she's there at noon. It's important for us to understand this, for us to sort of get this picture of what it means that Jesus came to dwell among us, that he moved into the neighborhood. So here we go. Verse 7. A woman from Samaria, an important thing to note, came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Okay, so, so far Jesus is moving into the neighborhood, but this is not like any neighborhood of mine, or maybe even yours, right? Do we have wells somewhere in the neighborhood that we go to? No. Um, but, but here's the truth. Um, this is a lot like our neighborhood, and we start to look at some of the details of this. There's a few things to note. Uh, this is in Samaria. All right, so what do you need to know about Samaria? Uh, 700 years earlier, uh, the, the kingdom, the Israel, was divided into two kingdoms, all right, the northern and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, where this has taken place, 
uh, was, was uh, overtaken by the Assyrians, a, a foreign country that just came in and invaded, captured all the best of the best of the people of, of that region and took them off into captivity. And the Jews that were left, the Jews that were left there eventually intermarried with the Assyrians and those that occupied the land. Now, if you know God's commandment to live in Israel, when God took Israel out of Egypt and said, go to the promised land, live there, but don't intermarry. It was one of the things he said. Don't intermarry. God was setting us apart of people, how they ate, how they, how they worshipped. Everything about them was to be different than the rest of the world. Part of that was to stay, uh, uh, to not intermarry, to not have the culture override, to sort of, what ends up happening is the Samaritans were understood by uh, people in the northern, the southern kingdom, or eventually all Jews, would look at the Samaritans and go, you were people who caved into the culture. You gave in to culture and just, uh, just became part of it. And so Jews looked down their nose at Samaritans, and Samaritans looked down their nose at Jews. So here's the thing. If you've ever compromised your faith, because of the culture or the influence of the culture in any way you can relate to this woman at the well. And I would have to say, I can relate. I've caved on some things and I'm not proud of. I've given in to cultural pressure. And I've, I've, I've jettisoned my faith in some areas. And so now maybe we can begin to relate. So Jesus is moving into a neighborhood here with those of us who have caved and given in to cultural pressure and compromised our faith in some way, Jesus has moved in to the neighborhood with sinners like you and me. That's the neighborhood he's moved into. So let's keep looking at this and see if we can identify. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. That's a very important sentence. We're going to pick that apart here in a second. Verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? And are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and, and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me that water. Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, she's not understanding what he's saying, right? Because she said, give me that water. Then I won't have to come during the noonday hour to get water. I want that. Boy, you know, is this like indoor plumbing? What, What is this? Give me that water. But what Jesus says at the very beginning, that first sentence that he gives is so critical. It's it's important to see it. So one of the things he says in verse 10, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink. See, the gift of God, we read down um, in verse 14, it's eternal life because that water you're going to drink, it'll well up in eternal life in you. So we're learning why Jesus came, why he would interact with anybody. Why did he move into the neighborhood to give eternal life? to give living water for us to drink. That's why he came. Now, the next part of it, he does, he says, um, he gives the gift of God. He says it's the living water. He is referencing, by the way, uh, Jeremiah chapter 2, the prophet Jeremiah in verse 13, where Jeremiah uh, is saying this, 
Uh, he's recording God's word. For my people, this is Jeremiah 2, verse 13, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. There it is. That's the first thing. They have forsaken me, right? They have lost the wonder. <laughs> the wonder of who I am has faded from them. So that's the first thing. Uh, they have done two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And then secondly, they have hewed out, for, uh, out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Cisterns were wells. The people had dug wells other than the well of God. So there's two things that are going on. And Jesus is referencing this. And so we're starting to make these connections. There's a woman at the well. Jesus is talking about living water. Yet there are these broken wells that are out there that people are drawing water from. Now, Jesus has moved into our neighborhood, and he's starting to meddle, right? He is starting to pierce our hearts because we have to start to ask the question, what are the wells that are out there that we dig for ourselves? What are the things that we go after other than Jesus where we go to drink from, and we want that water? Well, um, to help out here in some way, um, a few months ago I was listening to a sermon from a pastor out of New York, uh, Tim Keller, um, and he referenced, uh, he said something along these lines, that there is a reoccurring theme throughout all scripture, that power, success, comfort, and recognition are the things that we go after. And I would say these are sort of the wells that we would dig. Power, uh, uh, success, comfort, and recognition. And the way that he does that, the way he did that in the sermon was he went back to some words of Jesus, where Jesus is giving something, a very similar uh, sermon to the Sermon on the Mount, where he say, he's, he's talking about blessings and woes. And so he lists out blessings first and then the woes, but I'm going to do it in reverse. Here's the woes that Jesus gives. Now listen close to this, and these are the wells that we go after so often. Jesus says, but woe to you who are rich. Now the rich typically what? Are the successful and the powerful, right? Uh, and then it says this, woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Power, success, and comfort. Jesus is saying, woe to you. Woe to you who are well fed, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. There it is, recognition, right? We want recognition. We want power. We want all these things. These are the wells that we're digging. Jesus is saying, woe to you. And there's a reason for that. Because if you have these things, these are the wells, they're going to empty out eventually, but you don't see your need for Jesus, right? You don't see your need. Now, when Jesus is talking about those who are blessed, at first, he says this. He says, blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. See, these are people who see their need for Jesus. Now, I just want you to imagine for a moment what a church would be like if you didn't see your need for Jesus. A church full of people who don't see their need for Jesus is a very tragic church indeed. It's horrible. It's the kind of church we don't ever want to be part of. We want to see our need for Jesus. So when people come through those doors, we need Jesus now, and we are more sensitive to those who come through our doors and those who live in our neighborhoods. And so Jesus is saying, woe to you if you have no needs and you have some sort of cistern that you're drinking from. But it's going to run out. But blessed are you when you see your need because that's who I came for. Now, um, the woman at the well, her deal was she was finding hope in relationships because we find out here in a second 
that she's been married many times and she's living with somebody now. Here's what happens. Let's read it. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. So her sin's exposed, right? She's hoping in relationships, and she's probably grasping at straws. Um, um, She's afraid. She thinks this is the only hope, if I can just attach myself to somebody. And in that culture, if you were a woman alone, you were hopeless. Uh, Then it goes on to say, What you have said is true, the woman said to him. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, here's the thing that I noted about this, and we do this. As soon as our sin's exposed, we, ought, we just start to we redirect the conversation because we don't want to deal with our sin. So she immediately um, draws attention to the worship discussion. Now, this is important to know this. Samaritans look down their noses at Jews. Jews look down their nose at Samaritans. Um, and Jews worshipped in Jerusalem. Samaritans on Mount Gerizim. So she, her sin's been exposed, and she's thinking, she's probably wondering, well, how does he know this? Maybe my reputation is so bad that even though I come here at noon and somebody from out of town knows about my reputation. Because she, she was going to the well at noon because she was ashamed. She didn't want to be there when the rest of the town was there. But her sin's been exposed, and she wants to hold on to one last little feeling of superiority. Superiority, superiority over this Jew. And so she talks about worship. You say it's in Jerusalem, but we know it's over here. And don't we do that? Don't we do that? We don't ever really want to talk about our sin. And I think as Presbyterians, we're like the worst at it. We want to talk about how we got worship right. It's rooted all the way back to the Reformation. You know, we, just, we, we, just, we could talk about how great we do worship, and we have an order of worship, and we do this and this and this and this and this. And, we, and you have a church full of people like that. Here comes the church split, man. Just wait. It's going to happen. Because at some point, you just don't face your sin. You start to hold on to the things that you get right. And I do that. And that's what the woman at the well is doing. Her sin was just exposed, and she wants to talk about worship. She wants to talk about anything but her sin. So here's what we learn. The woman at the well is us. Jesus really is moved. He has moved into our neighborhood. Because here's what he is facing. Here's what's in this story. You have people who have given in to cultural pressure. You have people who are digging wells of success and power and comfort and recognition. You have people who feel superior to other people. Just some aspect they hold on to and they judge others. And then finally, they have hidden sin that they run to for relief. When they're not doing, and they know, they know they have sin. I, I run to certain sins for relief, right? I go to a certain well to drink from rather than Jesus. And so here's the thing. Do you see yourself in the story yet? Because it's really important to see yourself. Do you see what a mess you are? And let me just, one last little thing I want to point out. This is how subtle Satan is, right? This is how subtle Satan really is. Um, I talked about how the sort of the wonder of Christmas, I'm five, and after that, all the ones after that weren't as good, you know? I mean, and you start to get older, 
you know, and, and you, you sort of lose the wonder as a kid. And my parents, were, again, were just exhausted, you know. Christmas rolled around. I think they would just rather write a check and go here, you know. Good luck. Uh, have fun. But um, it's just like so when you start to get older, Christmas, kind of the cool things about Christmas fades. Here's an interesting point about getting mature in Christ. We can become mature in Christ so much so that the wonder of who Christ is fades. Uh, I get this idea from a guy named Paul Miller. In our denominations magazine, it's a magazine called By Faith, uh, earlier this year he, uh, he, was, he, he was talking about how we need to come back to God as like children, not childish, but childlike. And so the question was posed to him was that um, how a mature believer, uh, how can a mature believer sort of come back to God as a child? And this is what he said. Very interesting. At least I thought so. Um, he said this, to become like a child over and over again is one of the more difficult tasks of a believer. Our tendency, our tendency as we grow in Christ is to become better at life. We, we sort of get better at life. You get older, you get better, right? We get wiser, more loving, and more prudent. So naturally, we then become less dependent. So the very work of Christ in us makes us more distant from the spirit of Christ. Wow. This is how subtle sin is. This is how subtle Satan is. Your maturity in Christ can actually make you more judgmental. Actually make you less dependent on Christ. Because, man, i got my act together. It's sad. Now, because that, that is one of those broken cisterns that we can dig for ourselves. Being mature in Christ. Nothing wrong with being mature in Christ, by the way. But do you see the traps that come with it? Because here's the deal, man. It is a rough neighborhood that Jesus has moved into. It is subtle. It's rough. There are all kinds of cisterns we dig for ourselves. There's so many things we can grow dependent upon other than Jesus. And so I think that this is what it means for us to lock ourselves up in the attic, take out the 8-millimeter film, Read these stories of the Incarnation and to see ourselves in it, to see what a mess you and I are. We have to remain needy all the time. This congregation needs to remain needy. We never need to be a church where we are so mature we don't need Jesus. You know, got to act together so much that we don't feel the pain of those around us. We need to look again and again and again at what Jesus did for us. So here's the thing. So do you see the mess that you are? And if you do, the next things I'm going to read from in this passage ought to cheer you up, ought to give you hope. Here they are. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will we worship the Father. So she's talking about worship, and he's going, Listen, I don't care. <laughs> I, I don't care. There's something better than this mountain versus that mountain. This denomination versus that denomination. You know, whatever. Here we go. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, but the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. He wants people who are just so taken deep in their heart that they've been so affected by truth. He wants those people. He wants people who see their need, are broken, and have only hope is in Jesus. That's what he's saying. He said, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, 
I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her in these wonderful words, he says, I who speak to you am he. He is saying, I am the anointed one. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you waited for. This is it. When, if you can believe and understand that Jesus is that Messiah, it'll change everything about how you worship, how you live your life, is what Jesus is saying. Uh, so worship is not merely outward. It involves an effect, uh, our hearts being affected, that we see Jesus' worth and we give him what he's worth. Our whole lives change as a result. We need to see Jesus through the eye of need. Now, one little connection I need to make, and then we'll close here. Um, when Jesus is saying, when Je- she says when the Messiah comes, the anointed one comes, he'll, he'll tell us all things. And he says, yeah, I'm that one. I'm the Messiah. That's not the only time that he claimed to be Messiah. There's one other time, or many other times, but one in particular, Luke 4. Jesus stands in a synagogue and he reads from Isaiah 61. This is what he says. Listen to these words closely. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. I'm the Messiah. I'm the anointed one, Jesus is saying, to proclaim good news to who? The poor. (laughs) He has sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners and recovery of sight of the blind, people who are in need, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He's saying, I'm the anointed one. I'm the Messiah. I have come for those who need me. Jesus has come for those who see their need for him. Therefore, worship is our whole being being affected by God's glory. We see his worth and we're motivated and compelled to give him what he's worth in our whole life. And we love well and we serve this neighborhood well. We serve the city well. We give up everything to live for Jesus. A life of thankfulness, a life of hope. Now, don't you want that? That's the wonder of Christmas. That is the wonder of the incarnation. Now, here let me summarize a couple of things and we'll close. There's, we've talked about a lot. Let me see if I can pull this together. There are um, two things that we learn about the incarnation here. When we read this story about Jesus interacting with the woman at the well, first thing we need to note is that he's the one who took the initiative. He stepped towards her, right? And the second thing that's amazing about this is that he knew all the details of her life, all the details of her life. Now, uh, especially as a young Christian, when I would read this, I would, the thing that amazed me was that he knew the details. It's like, wow, how did he know that? You know, oh, he's God, and so he knew that. And, and trying to figure out, well, in his flesh, how much did he know, not know, but we find out that he knew everything about her. And I thought, that's, that's what's amazing. He knows everything about her. But let me tell you what's so amazing about this, is that Jesus knew everything about her. Knew, she, knew the mess that she was, knew, every, knew all of her sin. But what's amazing is he still took the initiative. He knew everything about her, and he still stepped towards her to love her. He didn't sort of back up and go, man, what a mess. <laughs> Did you see her life? She's on number six. goes towards her that's the wonder of the incarnation let me see if I can expand on that and give you the same chills I'm getting 
This is what Jesus did for you and me. This is a picture of what he did for us. I'm reading from Ephesians chapter 1. This great chapter, this long sentence that Paul, through his spirit, gives to us. This is what's said. Because this is a picture of the incarnation, what Jesus did for us in the woman at the well. This This is our story. This is from Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Then in verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. In love, according to the purpose of his will, before the foundations of the world, he saw us, he chose us. To the praise of his glorious grace, his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So here's the thing. In the overflowing harmony and joy and light and love of the Trinity, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Jesus, the Son, between the three of them, did what theologians call uh, pactum salutis, which is Latin for the covenant of salvation, that they all agreed amongst themselves that what they would do to come and rescue a people who did yet, had yet to exist. They agreed. They, Jesus said, I will go do this thing. Jesus agreed to come, take on flesh and blood in humility. In humility. Did you note from the story that Jesus was exhausted? He'd been walking. He was tired. He plops down and, you know, at a well and just is exhausted. And then here comes this woman. And he knows everything about her. In his exhaustion, he takes a step towards her. So Jesus comes in humility. Uh, uh, Philippians 2 says he emptied himself. He gave up heaven to come for us. He came before the foundations of the world. He agreed to come for us. To move into the neighborhood with people like us, like the woman at the well, sinners who make our own wells rather than drinking from the well of Jesus. And he took on flesh, not out of necessity, that if he gained flesh, he would be better. In fact, we gain from what we see in Scripture that he actually gave up something to take on flesh. And then to add to Ephesians chapter 1, let me add 2 Timothy, verse 9 of chapter 1. God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works. He came not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace. And as we learn in Ephesians, out of love, which He gave us in Christ Jesus. When? Before the ages began. Before the ages began. And here's the truth. God loves you just because He loves you. Not because of anything you've done. He loves you just because He loves you. He loves you not because we're Presbyterian or PCA. He he loves you not because you have done good things. He loves you not because you've you've kept a narrow, uh, nice, clean path all your life. He loves you just because He loves you. No, in fact, here's the wonder of the Incarnation. Before the foundations of the world, Jesus knew everything about you. Everything. All of your sin. All of my sin. He knew everything about you. And what's glorious is He still came. He still came. 
He knew everything. All of your sin, where you run for relief, all that sin, every bit of it, and he still came. He didn't have a discussion among the, 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 with the Father and the, the spirits and, and just sort of shake his head and say, I'm not coming for that one. He knew everything about you, and yet he came. He took the initiative and came after you. Amen. Praise God. And see, that's how the incarnation moves from our head to our heart when you believe that. To the degree that you believe that will be the degree that you change and are affected and will in the same way that God loves us, will love others. You will love others in that same way. And here's how this whole passage closes out. I promise you, I'm almost done. Verse 27. Just then his disciples came back in John chapter 4. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, why do you, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? In verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, I love that, she left her water jar. She's, that, that's, she's not going to drink from that well anymore. You know, we need to leave our jars, our broken stuff. God, show me what they are. And she left them. And then I love what happens next. She goes back among the people that she's so ashamed to be among. You know, she's got to hide and go during the noonday. She goes back to them, and then she says, this is pretty amazing, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. And I can see you serious saying, yeah, all that I, you know, all the stuff you guys talk about behind my back, he knows that, and he still talked to me, and he still loves me. That's, the, that's who this man is. Let's go see him. Go come and see him. So, in uh, verse 30, so they went out of town and were coming to him. And then verse 39, many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. There's somebody that knew this about her, and yet he, they still went after her. That's amazing. And that's what is amazing about us. And it's amazing about what he's done for us. That's what's amazing about the incarnation. Now, yeah, that's how we're to love, too. That's how we're to love others. Because if you love somebody because of what they can give you, um, then you'll crush them. If you're married and you say to your spouse, I love you because, man, you still look like we're in college. <laughs> you, know, you look just, oh. And I love you because of what you can do for me. Then that person will begin to identify with that. And they're going to live for that. They're going to dig a well for themselves. And whenever that thing goes away, whether you love your husband because of the income he brings in or whatever it is, if that ever goes away, then he's crushed and you have no reason to love him. See, you need to love people just because you love them because that's how jesus loves us and that'll change how you interact with others it'll change your heart it'll change this church it'll change this neighborhood it'll change this city and i want to see what that looks like i want to live long enough to see that happen and so the wonder of the incarnation is that we have been free to love god and others in the very same uh, in freedom because Jesus loved us when we were unlovable. And he saw our, our unlovable selves before the foundations of the world. And he came anyways. He still loved us. That's what's amazing. Let that change us and never be the same. Let's pray. Father, uh, I want to thank you for this message. Uh, let us live in a, with a heart of thankfulness because this is true. And Father, change us. 
Let the truth of the incarnation, let the wonder come back to us. And let it begin with our sin. And let us see our sin. And let it be exposed. And let us not talk about something else, but let us talk about that sin with you. And let us repent. And then let us be thankful for what you've done for us. And in light of that forgiveness and that freedom, uh, let us live for you and never be the same. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.